Welcome to the Internet Work. This is another episode in our Ask a Fellow series. Uh, today we have Dr. Tuba Ali uh, with us. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. So my name is Tuba. I'm a, a final year fellow in the adult rheumatology program at Queen's University in Kingston. I did my internal medicine with Allison at McMaster at my medical school in Pakistan at the Al Khan University. Great. Um, so like every Ask a Fellow series, we're just going to start with a case. Uh, take it away. Great. So the case that I'm going to talk about today, I've gotten actually from the Canadian Vasculitis Learning Initiatives book by Dr. Christian Penno and his team at University of Toronto. So this is a 22-year-old woman presenting with uh, hemoptysis and respiratory distress with a four-month history of rhinitis and sinusitis. Um, for which she took several ineffective courses of antibiotics. She also has fever with productive cough. Um, she's hypotensive and tachycardic and has a fever on exam. Uh, she has bilateral crackles in her lungs with hypoxia. And her x-ray shows bilateral diffuse alveolar consolidation with possible nodules and moderate pleural effusions. She also has an acute kidney injury with a serum creatinine of 467 with microscopic hematuria with 3 plus blood and 3 plus protein present. Her CRP is 211. Um, the rest of her initial workup is fairly negative. Great. Uh, so this is our episode on pulmonary renal syndromes, and you nicely outlined what a patient might look like. Um, if they came in with one, let's sort of dial it back. What exactly uh, is pulmonary renal syndrome? So pulmonary renal syndrome is a term used to describe a complication of a group of diseases that primarily present with respiratory failure and renal failure together. The respiratory failure classically is diffuse alveolar hemorrhage and the renal failure is glomerulonephritis. However, there are slight variations described for both of these. They usually occur at the same time, which is how the term pulmonary renal syndrome came into being. Great. And so when you suspect that somebody has pulmonary renal syndrome, um, what, what are the differential diagnoses that you're, you're kind of thinking of? So it's a pretty broad differential diagnosis for things that can present as a pulmonary renal syndrome. The top few of them that you should think about is uh, anti-GBM disease or good pastures disease, um, ANCA-associated vasculitis like GPA or MPA, um, lupus, um, catastrophic antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, commonly known as CAPS, and then can be drug-induced. It can be from a systemic infection like endocarditis can cause an embolic phenomenon. And then finally, almost any other small vessel vasculitis can affect these two organs, which would manifest again as a pulmonary renal syndrome. However, I should mention that the vast majority of pulmonary renal syndromes in clinical practice are actually ANCA-associated vasculitis. Uh, great. So um, pulmonary renal syndrome then is sort of encompasses a whole bunch of diseases um, underneath sort of that broad headline. When somebody's coming in to the emergency department or being seen by the internal medicine service, what clinical features on a history and physical might lead you to suspect pulmonary renal syndrome? Okay, so that's a good question. So let's break it down. Let's talk about history first and then physical exam next and try and break it down, right? So in history, a patient usually reports symptoms consistent with respiratory failure. So they could have trouble breathing, cough, with or without hemoptysis, chest pain. They could they often also have a systemic inflammatory response. So they'll have significant fever, weight loss, fatigue for the past couple of weeks. In terms of the renal failure, the hematuria is usually microscopic, so the patients won't report that. They'll just complain of feeling fatigued. 
Um, and then you might have other symptoms based on the underlying etiology. So for example, an ankylosis person might complain of sinusitis, purpuric rashes, joint pain, peripheral neuropathy, so pins and needles in their fingers or weakness. A lupus patient might complain of rashes, sicka symptoms, oral ulcers, arthralgia, raynodes. Uh, a patient with caps might have a clot or a bleed somewhere. So it depends on what else is the underlying etiology. Right. In these patients, I often encourage people that take a very detailed history as there are many mimics to vasculitis. So ask about prescription drugs, over-the-counter drugs, or illicit drug use as, um, for example, cocaine or any, even antithyroid medicines can often cause an anti-antibody. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Um, and then when you see someone uh, on physical exam, obviously you want to make sure everyone is stable before you proceed with their history and physical. And I guess some of these patients, it sounds like, can be quite sick. Um, they can be quite hypotensive or yeah. have some some version of respiratory distress. Um, so once you've stabilized the patient, what uh, would you look for on examination? Yeah, so you're right. These patients are often fairly unstable, as like the patient I talked about in our case, that she was fairly unstable based on her vitals. So on examination, you might notice a fever, a tachycardia, tachypnea with hypoxia. On the respiratory exam, you might have used crackles if they're bleeding in their lungs. If they have pulmonary masses, you might appreciate decreased air entry or agophony. Uh, pleural effusions are much less described, but they certainly can happen. The renal failure is usually not noticeable in physical examination, apart from mild edema that you might notice. Uh, but again, based on whatever the underlying disease is, you might find other features. So for example, uh, in ankylosis, you will look for palpable purpura or subcutaneous nodules. You will look for peripheral neuropathy with localized sensory or motor deficits. Uh, you will look for swollen, painful joints. Whereas in somebody with lupus, you would look for other the photosensitive rashes like malar rash on the face or a discoid rash. You would look for Raynaud's with digital ischemia in the hands, oral ulcer. You would listen for a like pleural rub or a pericardial rub. If you have a patient who has pulmonary renal syndrome but no other systemic features, then that's the kind of patient you would suspect anti-GBM disease in because that disease typically has nothing else happening. So it's just isolated to the pulmonary and renal system. That's right, because the GBM membrane is only found in those two organs. Oh, interesting. And going back to the renal failure, does it typically present as aneuric or oliguric renal failure or people usually still have preserved urine output? So both have been described. The renal function does typically tend to deteriorate, but the amount of urine production may not be affected. Got it. Um, okay, so uh, you've walked us nicely through the history and physical. Um, so we've kind of, you know, gone through our patient. Uh, what what investigations uh, would you think about ordering sort of upfront um, initially if you're suspecting a pulmonary renal syndrome? Yeah, so if this is a patient that you've, you're seeing in the emergency room, for example, I think you should, in your mind, think of it as you want to investigate to establish the extent of the disease, to diagnose the underlying disorder, and also to rule out other mimics that might be going right. on. So your initial blood work would include uh, a CBC. You can expect a drop in hemoglobin if they're bleeding. You would mm -hmm. check inflammatory markers like the CRP, blood cultures and sputum cultures if there's any sputum to rule out infections, a serum creatinine to establish the degree of renal failure, a urine analysis to document presence or absence of blood and protein in the urine. You would expect hematuria and proteinuria in the urine dip, and a microscopic analysis would show you RBC casts, which signify a glomerular pathology. Right. The next step would be to, to diagnose the underlying disorder. So this is when we talk about all the antibodies, right? Right. 
Um, so if you go back to our differentials, the antibodies that you would be looking for, so you would ask for an ANA with a full ENA panel. And that would be looking for lupus. That would be looking for lupus or other um, connective tissue diseases that can be associated with glomerulonephritis, but right. lupus would be the classic one. Right. You would check your ANCAs for ANCA vasculitis, and then you would check an anti-GBM antibody for good pastures disease. Right. And the complements will also help you. Uh, with some of the connective tissue disorder. So classically well. for lupus, but for your eyes, you'll check the complements. Uh, you should also check antiphospholipid antibodies like lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipin, or beta-2 glycoprotein. Uh, and then you would uh, do imaging to see what is the extent of the disease. So a chest x-ray to start with, which might show you diffuse infiltrates, but really you need a good high-resolution CT scan of the chest to establish uh, the extent of the disease, and you may also see pulmonary infiltrates, masses, or nodules. Right. Finally, in these patients, I encourage everyone to try and perform a bronchoscopy fairly urgently, because first of all, it helps you prove diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, because you need to prove that there's hemorrhage happening in two anatomically distinct segments of the lungs right. to be able to call it diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. Secondly, you need to rule out pulmonary infections, because if you want to treat these patients with immuno immunosuppression, you have to make sure there's no lung infection going on. Right. And thirdly, it's a good way to get some lung tissue for biopsy if you need it. That's right. And then finally, depending on if you, if you find something else, you should investigate appropriately. For example, if you suspect peripheral neuropathy, ask for a neurology consult and get an EMG study. You may even find a nerve that's amenable to biopsy. I would also recommend checking a cardiac troponin and a CK and a D-dimer for coagulation profile to rule out other thrombotic microangiopathies that they can sometimes coexist. Um, okay, so we already talked about how some of these patients can present fairly acutely and fairly unwell. What are the life-threatening complications that occur uh, within the realm of pulmonary renal syndrome? So pulmonary renal syndrome can be a life-threatening presentation because of the rapid onset of both the respiratory failure and the renal failure. Um, often it's the renal failure that's the cause of mortality. However, remember that since these are systemic diseases, you can have other organ complications that can also lead to morbidity and mortality. Yeah, and I guess, again, in pulmonary renal syndrome, a large part of the uh, management is going to be supportive management, so supporting any type of renal failure, um, considering whether or not um, the patient might require dialysis if somebody is becoming very hypoxic or in respiratory stress, whether or not ICU level or further... Uh, resp respiratory support would be required um, and, and so on. Um, but specifically for pulmonary renal syndrome, then what is the initial management? So in these patients, often you're right, the first few hours you're just spent stabilizing the patient because often infection has to be ruled out fairly confident before you can start to move on further true treatment, right? So do you find that most of these patients are started um, on antibiotics when they come in? Very commonly. I think the vast majority of these patients are starting on antibiotics because lung infection is so much more common than lung hemorrhage. Right. And pneumonia can also always cause alveolar hemorrhage. Exactly. Right? So if you yeah. think of if you were to ask to come see a patient in the emergency room, you would approach this as what's common first and then think of renal syndrome as a sort of a second-line diagnosis. Right. Right? So think of this patient... Um, as someone you have to stabilize first and then investigate maybe slightly afterwards. Right. So you would ensure that ABCs, especially if they require intubation for hypoxia, they usually require ICU setting because the secured airway makes bronchoscopy much easier later. Right. Which is a crucial part of diagnosis. Right. Uh, 
Uh, you have to obtain adequate samples for culture as it is critical that infection is ruled out before we can even suppress these patients. Um, and then you will send off all the antibodies we talked about. Um, and again, you will look for urgent indication for hemodialysis in these patients and then urgent consults to ICU, respirology, nephrology, and rheumatology are very reasonable. Right. Um, and I guess generally, and I guess the purpose of this podcast is that you would have wanted to start a lot of the workup um, if you are suspecting pulmonary renal syndrome when you do call those services. That's right. If you see respiratory failure and renal failure in any patient together, I think it's a very reasonable thing to think about this and send off the antibodies. Because if you don't send the antibodies off, you, that's why these diagnoses are often delayed. These patients often sit on the ward for a week on antibiotics, not getting better, before someone thinks of and sends off an ANCA. So once you've made the diagnosis of pulmonary renal syndrome, um, what is what are the treatments, I guess, specifically for each uh, disease broadly? So let's talk about the common three, I guess. Eh? So if yep. you're talking about uh, anti-GBM or good pastures disease, and that is typically treated with high-dose steroids, immunosuppression, and plasmapheresis. And these patients tend to respond very nicely. Often the anti-GBM antibody is removed so nicely from plasmapheresis, these patients re- resolve fairly quickly. If you talk about ankyovasculitis, then these patients will respond to high-dose steroids in combination with immunosuppression. The typical agents would be either cyclophosphamide or rituximab. The choice of agent will depend on certain patient-specific and disease-specific factors. Uh, The role of plasmapheresis in ankyovasculitis was a topic of much debate in the past. A recently completed randomized control trial called the PEXIVAS trial by Dr. Uh, Walsh at McMaster demonstrated no benefit of plasmapheresis and ankyovasculitis at kidney survival or mortality at three years. So we suspect that this trial might change practice about plasmapheresis in these patients. The caveat being a small percentage of the patients in this trial were truly pulmonary renal syndrome requiring ICU stay. Right. So we're looking forward to the uh, results of that trial being published. It's only been presented at a few meetings uh, internationally so far. Very interesting. And then if you talk about lupus, then lupus will respond to, again, high-dose steroids and immunosuppression. Plasmapheresis in lupus has been investigated in cohort studies, but there's been no randomized control trial. So this is often a case-by-case scenario for lupus and plasmapheresis. And the steroid dosing that you would typically use when they first come in or first present uh, would be a pulse-dose steroid. That's right. So high-dose steroids. So uh, which would be either a gram or 500 milligrams IV daily for the first three days. Of methylpred? Of methylprednisolone. And then you can start uh, one milligram per kilogram of oral prednisone after that. Right. And do the lungs and kidneys generally recover after initial treatment? So they do. So usually uh, renal failure can resolve, although a certain subset of patients will progress to end-stage renal disease. Pulmonary hemorrhage usually does stop, but they might have lung scarring. And then based on the individual disease, like in ankyovasculitis, you can get pulmonary masses, subglottic stenosis, pulmonary infiltrates, lung collapses. So there's a wide variety of what pathology one patient might get. Right. Um, Is there a role for biopsies in pulmonary renal syndrome for diagnosis? That's a great question, which comes up in clinical practice all the time. So truly in the right clinical setting, a positive ANCA or a positive anti-GBM antibody is enough for diagnosis and tissue is not required, especially as these patients are often too sick at presentation to allow a safe biopsy of the lungs or the kidney. However, tissue diagnosis is always very helpful. 
And often it's either a nerve biopsy from an EMG or a skin biopsy of a purpuric rash that will prove vasculitis. That in combination with a positive antibody is often all we need to start treatment. Oh, very interesting. And renal biopsies then typically don't do? Renal biopsies are difficult because renal biopsies have a higher risk of hemorrhage. And in somebody who's already fairly unstable, they're rarely performed in these scenarios. So going back to our case then, we obviously have a patient who's um, quite unwell when she shows up. Um, There are signs of both renal and pulmonary involvement. Uh, What happens when we send off uh, her screening? So this patient's ANCA test is positive for a C-ANCA with a titer of 1 ratio 320. And can you just go over briefly... um, what is the significance of the ratios and how do you determine what a significant ratio is? So the ratios report, so some labs report ratios and some labs report absolute titer. So that might be different based on where you're practicing, but the titer essentially means, so if it's one ratio 320, that means they have diluted a sample 320 times for the antibody to be undetectable. That's a fairly high titer. Right. And so something that is uh, for instance, one over or one to 80 as a ratio means they diluted it 80 times. And it's gone away. That's and right. it's gone away. So, so it's one a, ratio 80, 80 is less than one ratio 320. Right. Okay. Um, and so what So what do we think about this patient then? She has a C ANCA positive, looks like she has both pulmonary and renal involvement. So ANCA associated vasculitis, it's a big umbrella term that includes different vasculitises that are grouped together because they all have an ANCA antibody or an anti-neutrophil cytoplasmic antibody. So this would typically include diseases like GPA or granulomatosis with polyangiitis, which used to be called uh, Wegener's granulomatosis, or MPA or microscopic polyangiitis, or EGPA, which used to be called Churk-Strauss. EGP doesn't typically cause pulmonary renal syndrome, so we don't talk about it in this podcast. So we're focusing mostly on GPA and MPA. So based on which ANCA your patient has, uh, you can then maybe classify them as a GPA versus an MPA. So GPA, or granulomatosis of polyangiitis, which used to be called Wegener's granulomatosis, is classically a C-ANCA disease and will classically have upper respiratory tract involvement, so the the rhinitis and the sinusitis like our patient has. Whereas MPA, or microscopic polyangiitis, is associated with the PANCA and will almost never have upper respiratory tract involvement, but will classically have the lower respiratory tract involvement like alveolar hemorrhage. And so treatment for all ANCA vasculitis is the same then, like you mentioned before. It doesn't matter if it's MPA versus GPA. In the first phase of the patient's treatment, it doesn't matter because induction for these diseases is classically the same. It's when you start moving on to the maintenance phase that these subtle differences might matter, which is why in long-term These patients are often closely monitored by rheumatologists for years to come. Um, So treatment is based on induction, which is typically three to six months of immunosuppression, and then a maintenance phase, which typically might be three to five years of immunosuppression. So the initial induction phase then is going to be the same for every patient. It's going to be pulse steroids uh, for three days and probably one milligram per kilogram of prednisone um, plus immunosuppression of some kind, so either cyclophosphamide or rituximab. Right. 
So the combination of that will be your induction phase for three to six months. Plasmapheresis may play a role at the beginning of the patient's presentation. So after three to three to six months, if the disease truly goes into remission, then you will want to maintenance therapy. Right. But we said plasmapheresis may be working its way out of ANCA-associated vasculitis. As per recently published evidence. Right. Awesome. Thanks, Tuba, for doing this podcast with us. Can you give us five take-home points um, for our listeners to remember when they're managing a patient with pulmonary renal syndrome? Salison, so I think the first takeaway point is to think of these diseases and subsequently to order these antibodies early in a patient who presents with lung and kidney involvement together. Uh, I think the second takeaway point I would say is in these patients to keep a very open mind, take a very detailed history and do a very thorough physical examination. It's often subtle things the patient may not be complaining of, like peripheral neuropathy or Raynaud's phenomena that might completely change um, which direction your diagnostic uh, pathway takes you. The third takeaway point I would make is to be very aggressive in ruling out infection in these patients before you immunosuppress them as immunosuppressing anybody with occult infection will likely cause much more harm than benefit. So in, so thoroughly obtain samples as appropriately necessary. Uh, I think the fourth takeaway point should be that don't hesitate to involve other specialties in these complicated patients. So for these, these patients, um, I would advise early consultation to rheumatology, respirology, and nephrology to get other people's expert opinion uh, to help your patients do well. And the final takeaway point I would make is that these patients can present fairly acutely in which scenario your goal should be to stabilize them first and investigate alongside. But these patients can also often present with a chronic manifestation of four months of shortness of breath and slowly progressive renal failure. Um, So even on those patients, keep this as part of your differential diagnosis. Great. Thanks again for having us do this podcast. It was really fun. I had a great time talking to you guys. I hope it was helpful. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Internet Work on Pulmonary Renal Syndrome. Our guest fellow today was Dr. Tuba Ali, Rheumatology Fellow at Queen's University. This podcast was reviewed by Dr. Christian Pagnum, Rheumatologist at the University of Toronto. This episode was recorded and produced by Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is developed by Leah Karianopoulos and Zara Morali and is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brent Vegas. Music production by Lakshman Vizantha Mohan. As always, if you liked our episode, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We always have an associated infographic that can be found at www.theinternetwork.com.